0: At this point in our Lord's ministry, there is a deliberate change of tactic, it would seem, from the gospel writers. No longer is our Lord Jesus teaching in plain teaching, but he switches to parables. And of course, many of you will be familiar with the definition of a parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And of course, that's mostly true. That's, that's largely true. However, I think when we say that, we tend to believe that The Lord was using parables as a teacher might illustrate in a classroom or use an object lesson because he's trying, as it were, to make the truth that the people can't understand more simplified or somehow identified with the own child's circumstances so that they can, as it were, grasp the knowledge that they don't seem to be grasping. I still do a bit of part-time teaching and last week there was a young man, didn't know six times four, didn't know four times six tables. Now, this young boy happens to be a, a chicken farmer, and uh, I said to him, how many eggs in a dozen? How many eggs in half a dozen? Six. Well, what if you sold four boxes of those eggs? Like that, 24. There you go. Trying to get, as it were, something to help him connect. Is that, is that what the Lord was doing with parables? I, I remind you that when the disciples asked the Lord, recorded in Matthew 13, why are you teaching in parables? it gets across to us their wonder and their, their puzzlement. What, what, what perhaps we don't grasp sometimes is that the Lord told a parable and then, so to speak, pronounced the benediction and closed the meeting. He told the parable, he didn't explain it, and that was the end of the message. How would you, how would you feel if after reading the parable from the Scriptures... I pronounced the benediction and prayed and expected you all to leave. I think you'd all be scratching your heads. And the disciples said, why are you doing this? After the parable of the sower, why are you teaching in parables, Lord? Why are you doing this? And he, they then had to ask him privately for the interpretation. What, what, what did you mean by that? And the Lord says there that the reason that he's teaching in parables is because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I'm teaching in parables not to make everything easier for everybody to understand, but I'm actually teaching this way because I have been plain teaching from the beginning of my ministry, and I've been calling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, because the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the king has drawn near, and I'm calling people to repent. But some people are rejecting that call. And so now I'm teaching in parables so that they who receive the light will gain more light. But those who reject the light will gain more darkness. It's not a fearful thought minimum. As we come to take up our Bibles again and come to take up the teaching of Christ, that as the teaching of Christ is set before you again, to some of you, it will be the savor of life unto life. It will be light upon light. And to those of you who reject Could be a savor of death unto death. Oh, don't believe the lie, young person. Don't believe the lie. You can leave salvation to another time. You can leave it to later. Later on, you'll have a chance. Later on, you'll think the same way that you do now. You'll have the same fear of God and sin and judgment and hell. The Lord Jesus, from his own lips, said, It's not so. Said, It's not so. The Son shines a light that illuminates us all. But if we look in pride directly at it, it'll blind us. Follow the light, young people. Now, I I mentioned there that I do a bit of teaching. Still, some of you know I've I've been involved in teaching for some time. I'm still doing a bit of part-time teaching. The word parable... If you look up in a dictionary, parabolic teaching, or just the term parabolic, you'll get two definitions. One, yes, it's the teaching that is in parables, but you'll also get that definition which is, oh, it's that shape that the mathematics teacher will draw on the board when he's talking to certain students. Forgive me, young people who are still at school, and you maybe think that Sunday will be a day away from the classroom in mathematics. But a, a parabola, you all have it in your cars. That, that, that shape, that mirror reflector shape that's inside your car headlight, that makes the light that radiates in all directions from the bulb concentrated into one big strong beam. May God be pleased to concentrate the light into your heart today in one big strong beam. But I, I'm mentioning this shape of a parabola, this parabolic shape. What, what's parabolic? It's teaching in parables, or it's a reference to this, this shape that you'll see in the, in the, in the classroom, the mass classroom, and usually it's drawn this way like a U-shape. And I just want you to keep that visual in your mind, young people especially, because that is my outline for the message today. Starting at a height, falling down to a most low and minimum point, and then rising again to greater heights. It's the gospel, men and women, in an illustration how we are In Adam, in creation, placed in a raised up position. And then, of course, the fall comes and we reach a most low point. But through Christ and in Christ, we rise to even greater heights. My sermon today is simply entitled, Lessons from the Parable of the Prodigal Son. Lessons from the Parable of the Prodigal Son. And my first point, I suppose, is a general point about that whole shape or that whole outline or the whole story. I want to think holistically. And here's my first point. Simple, I trust, but yet profound. I wouldn't want you to miss, especially parents here, and grandparents, I know this is for you as well. I wouldn't want you to miss this very, very simple truth that you can see in the story of the prodigal son. And it's this. Children can go astray. Children can go astray. Verse 12 says And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto him his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Some children go astray. Yesterday was a wonderful day for me. Uh, my daughter-in-law gave birth to a little darling baby girl. Two o'clock yesterday morning. And what joy and thanksgiving. Prayers answered, mother and baby are well. Well. Some, of course, dear little ones don't even make it out of the womb. Isn't that right? Heard recently of a young couple, Christian couple. Baby was stillborn. And I was told that they're struggling over that verse in Ecclesiastes. Time to be born. And a time to die. You know why they're struggling? Because Their baby's time to die came before it's time to be born. They're downhearted. They're discouraged. God bless and help anyone here who's experienced such a loss. In a world where children are inconveniences and disposable, God does have a purpose in taking back what he had given earlier than you wanted He is a God, remember, who gave his only begotten son to death. But thinking of babies who don't even make it out alive from the womb, I'm reminded that some don't grow up to follow the path that you've desired for them to follow. It's a different kind of pain than those who lose the child in the womb. All hopes and dreams that attend the birth of a child and the investment that you make, endeavouring to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, seem to be dashed. Yes, children, from the parable we can see, can go astray, even from the best of homes. The father in this parable is set before us as a man of incredible character and compassion and wisdom and patience. And yet, one of his sons goes astray. And you may say, yes, but the man in this parable is meant to represent God, is he not? God is in view in the father in the story. And God is perfect and we're so imperfect. And that's not really a fair comparison, is it? I'd like to read to you a verse that I think would help you if you're thinking like that. It's from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. And we read the words, God is speaking. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord hath spoken. I, this is God speaking. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God, the perfect father, says of his people Israel, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I'd like to read you a quote from a reformed pastor in America, a man by the name of DeYoung. Any parent struggling with this concept? Any grandparent struggling struggling with this concept? He simply says, addressing Christian parents and grandparents, we must reject our well-meaning but misguided spiritual determinism. That just simply means as a parent we think we can determine the outcome. It's a foolish notion. Yes, I know, we stand on the promises. Bring up a child... Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. But listen to the rest of the quote. As it turns out, it doesn't all depend on us. The Bible is full of examples of spiritual giants producing ungodly children and noble kin coming from polluted loins. While the proverbial wisdom of Scripture, the Proverbs I just quoted, and the promises of the Covenant tell us that good Christian parents and good Christian children normally go together We must concede that God is sovereign, salvation is a gift, and the wind of the Spirit blows where it wishes. And now this author quotes another author, a lady called Leslie Fields, who says this, Parents with unbelieving children, friends with children in jail, the faith heroes of Hebrews 11, All of these are powerful reminders of this truth, that we will parent imperfectly, our children will make their own choices, and God will mysteriously and wondrously use it all to advance his kingdom. Take comfort, dear Christian parent. Take comfort from the very Lord Jesus himself, the perfect teacher, whose own kith and kin His half-brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us, rejected him before the resurrection. Imagine that. The one who did no wrong. The one who could do no sin, thought no sin, said no sin. The people who knew him best, in a human sense, rejected him. And you might say to yourself, what is the Lord doing? You might ask yourself the question, what Lord are you trying to accomplish? Why do I have to endure this pain? Well, let me leave you with two suggestions. He's acquainting you with his own sufferings. He's acquainting you with his own sufferings that he endured on your behalf. Do you remember remember what Paul said? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Know the fellowship of his sufferings. Hard lessons to learn and yet important ones. And I would suggest, secondly, that he's breaking your alabaster box of self. He's breaking your alabaster box of self. What do I mean by that? You remember the story of the alabaster box? Precious ointment. But the sweet fragrance and Christ-likeness doesn't come out until you're broken in self. Going back to my daughter-in-law, without birth pains, you 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 don't have a living child. Without suffering, we don't get glory. Even now as I speak, doctors could be giving my little grandchild, granddaughter, one of those little heel pricks or an injection of some kind, causing her great distress that she doesn't understand. And yet we believe it's for her greater good. Isn't that right? Well, can you just trust the Lord, the great father and the great physician Who's allowing us to suffer in certain ways, allowing you to suffer, because it is ultimately for our greater good. And if you think, or that thought comes to your mind, and I'm sure it has, it's come to my mind before, I don't think I'm the only one. You think to yourself in your pride and in your sin, you think, I deserve better. May God give you grace to put that stupid thought out of your mind? No, you don't. None of us do. We don't deserve better, we don't deserve anything. Our fair just desserts would be hell. And we claim to believe that. Let me say secondly, not just that the children go astray, but if we think back to our curve, there's a danger of instant plenty. Verse 12 says, The Son demanded the portion of goods that falleth to me. Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, we are pretty clear that this was an agricultural home. A family farm. There's references to the older brother being in the field. There's references to the fatted calf being killed and the brother complaining that he didn't even get a kid, he didn't even get a goat. It definitely seems to be an agricultural home. And there is, of course, in the book of Leviticus, that law of God, that civil law of inheritance, which meant that the older brother gets a double portion. The old, the first sibling, the firstborn, So with this case, when there's two brothers, that would simply mean that the younger brother gets a third of the value of the inheritance and the older brother gets two thirds. He gets a double. But it would seem that the land would not be divided for such. The younger son would get his value through possessions or cash. And so perhaps to give this son his desire There had to be a selling of stock. I don't know. And perhaps that was part of the prodigal's thinking in why he wanted to go away or part of his justification. Because after all, why should he stay and slave, as he would perhaps think, to, as it were, build up his brother's empire? If he's never going to come into the inheritance and possession of it, why should he continue, as it were, to serve his brother? Perhaps he was thinking, I'll go it on my own. Now, we're not told if it's a Jewish or a Gentile family, but I believe, because of the mention of the pigs, that it is indeed a Jewish family. And there was nearby nations, like the Syrophoenicians, who actually, in their laws, allowed for such a thing to happen. That if a son wanted to claim his inheritance before the death of his father, it was possible. Now, you and I would think that was a great insult, and it is a great insult that the son wants to claim his inheritance, something that you should get. Inheritance is something that you get when obviously the bequeathing party dies. But in neighboring countries, this was possible, legally speaking, and I don't know if it was possible in the Jewish culture. But regardless of all that, it is a great insult to the father. It is a great willfulness on the son's part. The younger son, he can't see the danger of this instant plenty. This inheritance that he's come to at a young stage in his life with very little life experience and suddenly he's got himself a massive bag of money. And what's he going to do with it? Is he going to invest it in land or property? Is he going to use this newly gained capital to build a strong foundation for a successful and sustainable business? Sadly not. For him it's all about self-gratification. A self-centered indulgence that is totally unsustainable. Sadly, this is the case, is it not, with far too many who win the lottery. And I find myself time and time again when I think of applications for these messages. You cannot make any assumptions these days. I would like to assume that none of you would be tempted to play the lottery, but I don't know that. Some of you might think, why not? Why not? Why would we not take lottery money to build some extension to the church? I hope your doctrine is pretty clear on that. But I'm just saying that instant plenty has a danger and you can see that in those who win the lottery if you ever follow their stories. Have you ever followed those stories? Those that you see initially cheering and you know getting the champagne and rejoicing and their big, big check there that they're getting for millions of pounds and everything seems so happy. And you young people, I encourage you, go and follow some of their stories. Go and trace it to the end. Go and see where many of them, and it is many, where many of the stories lead. Those who come into instant plenty. Like Achan's gold and Babylonish garment. It just becomes a rope to hang themselves. And a Frankenstein that turns on them and destroys them. All oh, jealousies are created in the family and envy. Divisions disputing over how to spend the money and who's entitled to it. It ends marriages, it triggers legal disputes and even suicides. And some, and I've read them, some will even say, I wish I had never won that money. The dangers of instant plenty. You say to me, well, I, don't, I don't play the lottery. Okay, fair enough, praise the Lord. Still dangers of instant plenty. Proverbs 30 tells us, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. There was a man, Solomon of old, who understood the danger of instant plenty. The prodigal son comes into Instant plenty. Moses, as he stood on the verge of the promised land, he warned the people, you're going to go into the promised land, it's going to be a gift from God. Yes, there's going to be battles, but you're going to be given great and goodly cities which you didn't build, houses full of all good things that you didn't fill, wells dig that you didn't dig, and vineyards and all the trees that you didn't plant. And when you have eaten them and are full, he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, then beware. When you have a fullness, Then beware lest you forget the Lord. Young people, young people. Young people getting married. Why is it today that I see so many young people and they have a desire for instant plenty? They have a desire for an instantly furnished house. Instantly. As soon as they're married, walk through the door, everything perfect. Now I am hopefully tonight going to say some things about finances and make it absolutely clear that there is no sin that the, that the Bible attaches to riches. It's the love of riches. It's the desire for more. It's that selfish gratification and indulgence that the Bible condemns. But the danger. Is this in someone's heart? I have to have instant. I want instant planting. What about you next generation of free Presbyterians? Have you not come into instant plenty? Have you not come into a legacy of spiritual capital that has been grafted and hard worked for and been given, I should say, by the blessing of God? Have you not come into a legacy of spiritual wealth that you didn't labor for and you didn't suffer to obtain? Is it possible that you could end up despising that? Like a son who inherits a successful business that that was achieved through hard graft and dedication and sacrifice but doesn't appreciate its value? Takes it all for granted and mishandles it and wastes it. Just like the prodigal. The danger of instant plenty, I must continue. We have that overall look. Children can go astray. We have that starting off at a high point. This, this, this prodigal has this instant wealth. He has this position of power now with this money. What's he going to do with it? Well, my, point, my third point is he begins a journey to rock bottom. The Bible says in verse 14, he began to be in want. He began to be in want. It wasn't wasn't an instant thing, this. It was a gradual thing. It was a slow process. We don't know how long. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it was a gradual decline. Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this topic, he puts it like this. The prodigal son had been in a thoroughly bad situation for a very long time before he truly realized it. A man does not suddenly get into that state in which he is described here. It happened gradually, almost unbeknown to himself. And even after it happened, he did not properly realize it for some time. The process is so quiet and so insidious that the man himself scarcely sees it at all. He looks at his face in the mirror every day and he does not see the changes that are taking place. Am I describing anybody here? You're on a slow, gradual decline. You're on a journey to rock bottom. You look into the mirror, as James says in his epistle, and you forget. You put it aside. You brush it aside. You seek to ignore and pretend that it's not really happening. You seek to dampen your conscience and not listen to the voice that's saying, you're going in the wrong direction. Samson Samson who if you read Samson's story do you not feel like crying out Samson Samson beware you fool as he sleeps and falls for the lullaby of Delilah the Pied Piper and you feel like screaming out Samson wake up Samson get out of your trance Samson you're headed for danger young people are you in a relationship that's headed that way You're not listening to your conscience. You're not listening to the voice of those who love you dearly. Have you been living in denial? Dear Christian, this can happen to us. Oh, don't you you think otherwise? How we can backslide. How we can, as it were, pretend to ourselves. How we can look into the mirror of the light of the word of God. And we can deny the truth. A journey to rock bottom. It was slow, it was gradual, but it was happening. How, how does the prodigal son get out of such a dilemma? How do you get out of it? Well, we come to that bottom part of the curve. We come to that bottom part of the story. The minimum turning point you would call it in a math classroom. That rock bottom point of the graph. The Bible says... That he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. He'd lost everything. The famine had come and he had nothing left. He had nowhere else to go. And the Bible says he came to himself. He came to himself. Isn't that beautiful? What does it mean? He came to himself. Well, God had put him in this position of brokenness, of lowness. As Lloyd-Jones says, if you have a penny left To help yourself, the gospel will be no good to you. Oh, the Lord had brought him down to a brokenness, an emptiness, a point where he realized exactly where he was and he stopped denying it. Coming to yourself, I think, means the following. It means you come to yourself in the sense of who to blame. Think of a dial on your cooker or some other electrical implement, a dial that you can switch to all different sorts of settings. You see, he'd stopped blaming his father at this point. Oh, it was all dad's fault. If only this and if only that. Or maybe maybe he's blaming his brother. Next one on the dial. Oh, that brother, he he was just so proud. He was so puffed up. I, I had to leave, trying to justify himself. Then maybe he blamed the famine. It's all the famine's fault that I'm here. That's why I'm in this position. It's not really me. I didn't really make this choice. It was forced upon me. Maybe he even blamed bad luck. Some other deity. Some other false god. It's not me. I am not to blame. And the Bible says he finally came to himself. And the dial hit me. We have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us, as one writer once put it. All the self-help programs had failed. And if you're going to be saved here this morning, dear attender, You need to be in this broken place. This place of bankruptcy where you realize that you have nothing to contribute to salvation. It means to come to yourself to sober up. He came out of his drunkenness of mind. Paul said of the Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put you in this trance? Why are you believing this lie? And the prodigal son has sobered up. He has come to himself. And he is facing himself. That's what it means. He came to himself, as it were, he came to himself in the mirror. And he gave himself a long, hard look. No longer did he want to dodge the truth. No longer did he want to, st- to ignore the reality of his situation. No longer was he running and pretending and explaining away all of his circumstances. No, no. He said, I will arise and go to my Father. What was it? What was it that gave him such hope? At a rock bottom place. Are you in a rock bottom place and you think your situation's hopeless? May the prodigal son's story give you the hope that there truly is the hope in Jesus Christ, the love of God. This man's hope, the prodigal son's hope, was the love of his Father. He believed. He believed in his rock-bottom state that if I go, if I return, if I ask for forgiveness, I will. My Father does love me. I am convinced of it. It was his love. The love of the Father that convinced him to return. Oh, he said and he determined and he resolved that he would go. But if you just resolve, you'll never be saved. Oh, leave off your resolving, as Spurgeon said, and start your returning. Come today. Do what the prodigal did. The fact that you're in church today would give me encouragement. You're like the prodigal, and you've stood up in the field, and you've resolved to come. But you've got to go beyond that. You've got to come. I finish with this. Think of the curve. We've reached rock bottom, and he came to himself, and he faced it, and he understood his own blame in the matter, and he accepted it, and he's rescued by the thought of the love of the Father. I will be received. I will go. It is worth it. And he returns. And the last part then of that graph, I'm departing a little from the mathematical model. I want you to think of exponential change. These things, of course, in the math classroom are usually symmetrical. I want you to think of exponential change. I want you to see this man as he rises up, as you rise up if you come to Christ to an exponential level of height. Oh, what is there for this man as he returns to his father? The father a great way off. The father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. It's in the continuous tense. He kissed him continually. Can you picture the scene? The emotion, the love, the energy and it's all positive. Man, Spurgeon said, if you give God an inch, he'll give you a mile. Oh, if you just make a start in your feeble, pathetic, sinful state, just like I did many, many years ago. And you just come because you've got nothing to offer, but you come. And he comes. And think of the welcome. Think of it. There he is in his rags and he stinks, feeding pigs. And he's a disgrace and he's a shame. And what does he receive? A tidal wave. A deluge. Extravagant love that's what God has for you, dear sinner. The sinner that does repent. Oh, he makes his confession, but then the Bible says he's speechless. There's nothing else recorded. He's overcome. I imagine if I was in that position and you were in that position, you'd almost have to tell the father to stop. Stop. It can't be true. It can't be real. Think of what I've done. Think of the disgrace I've brought on your name. But no, the father will hear none of it. None of it. All love. All love. Dear dear Christian, your love today, unconditionally, eternally. Oh, bask in that today. Bask in that today. You have to come as you are. Yes, you can come as you are. You don't have to try and clean yourself up. You couldn't do it. That's Christ's job. You have to come in your rags and your stink. And you simply have to say sorry. May God give you grace to do so. The Bible says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The overflowing love of God towards the returning sinner. That's the main theme of this parable. That's the most important lesson that we can learn from the parable of the prodigal son. And I trust that I've made that clear. That I've got the message across as best as I can. Lessons from the story of the prodigal son. Don't miss the key lesson. The primary lesson why the Lord told the story. Prostitutes and tax collectors. Oh, God receives such darkened sinners if they will come, if they will repent. No no forgiveness without repentance. This is the sinner's perspective. Remember what I said. The parable of the sheep and the lost coin and then the prodigal son. Repent and believe the gospel. May God give you grace to do so. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the privilege to teach your word, to bring before the people the good news Oh Lord, there's so much bad news. So much to make us weep. So much ungodliness and wickedness. out As we look out and yet as we look in, we see the potential for it all. Hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Oh, what is the answer? What was the answer for the prodigal in his hopelessness? It was the Father's love. The Father's love. May people in this church be overcome today by this truth that God loves them. May they come to that place if they haven't already, that rock-bottom place where they understand that they're in the mess they're in because of their own sin and their own choices that they've made. But may they look to Christ. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. And there's only one Christ and there's only one answer to sin and there's only one relief from all of that burden and guilt and it's Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that that would be the strong beam of light that comes to hearts today in this place. May each one enjoy a safe journey home. May they enjoy a blessed time of lunch with family or friends. May they have a time of edification today. May we all remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And may you bless us again as we return to this house tonight in thy will, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you all again for your attention. God bless you.